from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast God is infallible there is no error that's the definition of god with a capital g but gods don't always have a capital g while some faiths have this one big god who governs it all others have multiple gods who interact with each other and the world of humans but while some gods make errors that sometimes their human followers have to deal with and take lessons from some gods are said to never make any errors what may seem like an error is often a way of teaching their followers something In today's episode my colleague Jairaj Singh and I are in conversation with author and mythologist Devdutt Patnaik about why some gods are seen as making mistakes and why others don't. Devdutt explains why gods in different religions and myths behave very differently and why we like our gods to be blameless and error free. He explains how the idea of an all-powerful god emerged, how the idea's influence stretched into other faiths and why it's been an attractive premise for leaders all through time. I would imagine that you know we would like to ascribe God as being the all-powerful. Even in faiths that have many gods, you would want to still embellish that one powerful god. Can you tell us a little bit about this whole allure of having bowing down to that one person, which is obviously predominantly a male? So uh, this is because of the colonial discourse, because most of our stories were written by colonial authors. How do you and I know the Norse mythology? How do you and I know Greek mythology? They are written by colonial people, scholars who were well-read, but essentially Christian in their training. And subjects like anthropology and sociology had not evolved. I think the human mind, if you look at it, we like a simple solution. Like right? there should be one formula to solve all problems. We love this one thing, a Ramban, as they say in Hindi. We want this one thing which will strike the target and solve everything. And um, we are always looking for it. it. Never goes away. Humans are always looking for it. If you look at it in the old, uh, smaller uh, groups, perhaps there was a more democratic way of living with different people having different power at different times. Then there were collaborative ecosystems, and gradually you have this autocratic ecosystem emerging, where there is only one king who decides everything. I think the way the political structure grows as you become larger and larger, very weirdly, you start getting irritated with collaboration. You start getting irritated with democracy, and you want a kind of a dictatorship, which is seems to be simpler and more efficient. And therefore, one god who solves all problems becomes the answer. And let's understand, uh, it's one of the reasons why the Roman Empire chose. used to become christian christianity spread as an imperial exercise it became popular with the slaves because he offered salvation the stories of martyrdom emerged and went spread amongst the aristocrats there were other cults like this but it's christianity which won over which it gave this idea one god and his archangels and this idea was very familiar to rome because one thing we don't realize is that they were fighting the parthians who were zoroastrians and who also had this idea of one god and with and even that one enemy not even multiple enemies one enemy so there was one god one enemy ahura mazda and angramanyu and that was the fight it was a very simple 
line, good things come from Ahura Mazda, bad thing comes from Angramanyu, God, devil, this idea of the devil came in many ways from Persia, percolates into the Roman Empire, Roman Empire which at that time is polytheistic, it's also a democratic system, uh, it was a republic at one time, then the Caesars come and then it becomes a monarchy and as it becomes a monarchy, it becomes monotheistic. So there's clearly a co correlation between monotheism the history of uh, imperial Roman Empire. That's when, the, for the first time, it's an imperial decree that everybody should follow this religion, those who don't. So the, all the temples are broken. This never happened before 300 CE. So roughly the time Gupta Empire was happening in India. We know the Roman trade collapses. Something major has happened in Europe. Uh, what has happened major? The Roman Empire has become Christian. It is going inwards. It is talking about uh, against hedonism and they're talking about salvation and the church will give you salvation. And the church is becoming very, very, very powerful. The Roman church. And even then you see the split, the Byzantine split. The emperor moves to Byzantium. There are different churches seeking absolute control which gives rise to the orthodox church which gives rise to what is called the catholic church there were churches in ancient egypt you see monotheism as being part of an imperial exercise and something that has to be remembered and in these uh, monotheistic order of belief is there any room for the god to make any mistake are there any gray areas god is infallible there is no error that's the definition of God with a capital G. In the Jewish faith, you don't even take his name. There is no name. His name shall not be spoken. It's this forbidding deity who has created the world and made humans on top of the plant and animal kingdom. This is not a two-way traffic. It's a one-way traffic. There's God and you shall obey. The angels obey him. The demons disobey him. The structure is very linear. It's There is no feedback loop and improvement. The God will be improved upon or you can complain to him. You can appeal to him. So you have this idea of the appeal and the petition. Even in the Sufis traditions where they say he's my lover, he's my beloved, the is masculine and you are the feminine. The power gradient is very clean. It may be a loving relationship, but you're not an equal. Is that also where the, the concept of blasphemy comes from, where you cannot speak against your gods because they are incapable of error. So you have to see it from even the human point of view. Now that when the child talks back to the parent, the parent doesn't like it. This kind of authority which exists even within family, we would like the younger generation to listen to the older generation. So I think this is projected in the idea of God who is so perfect that he cannot be challenged. His ideas cannot be challenged. And again, it becomes a very political idea. You can't hear God. You have to hear God through an institution. And the institution will tell you this is the way you're supposed to be. And the institution can decide what is blasphemy. This is right, that is wrong. And that's really a very powerful political control. God wants you to do this. God wants you to be homophobic. The God wants you to kill all the people who don't believe in him. These ideas are human ideas. They could easily be military ideas. But the moment you sort of outsource it to God, you get unbelievable level of authority, uh, which you don't have to prove. Because how do you prove that uh, God said so? You just say, well, it's written in the holiest book and you cannot challenge it. So there is no argument there. So it's finished. 
And that happens, right? You see this in a lot of religious people. They just said, well, it's written in the text. It's written in the Bible. It's written in the Quran. It's written in the Vedas. And now that becomes difficult to negotiate now. There's no human factor. So I think it's a very powerful political tool, which sort of um, is also very seductive to politicians. You have things like, say, Norse and Roman gods who keep making mistakes upon mistakes. They dig themselves into these sort of deep holes. They emerge from them only because they are gods. The mortals are kind of left to fend for themselves. Why do some myths go this way and have gods that are like that and others that don't? Let's look at take an example of Greek mythologies. So Greek mythologies have a whole bunch of gods and all the gods have different powers. Uh, but there's no one all-powerful god. There is a leader amongst the gods called Zeus. But he is also sharing his power with his brothers who control the sea, control the afterlife. And so there is not complete power. And he himself has uh, achieved the status by defeating the Titans. And the Titans had achieved their status by defeating the giants. And you're afraid that the current power system can be replaced and he can be replaced by humans. And therefore, he the, um, the gods of Olympus uh, distract human beings through wars, keep them busy with adventures. So they're so busy with the mundane stuff of life that they don't have time to uh, come together and plot against the gods and take over and become gods themselves. This is a very different idea of God, right? It's very different from the Middle Eastern pattern. The Norse people did not have a word called God. They had the Vanir and the Eir who lived in different parts of the world is like a tree and every branch of the tree has a different universe and in these different worlds there are different kinds of people and then what we call the Norse gods all the gods have their halls uh, on different branch or a sub-branch so humans live in one of those branches so we are one of many creatures there are elves, there are demons and the closest we get to understanding them is by films like Lord of the Rings. Of course, Lord of the Rings goes Judeo-Christian because he tries to make them good and bad and all that. But the Norse did not have it. They were troublemaking gods. It was Loki, the trickster. And the gods knew that one day they're going to die. The tree is going to be broken. And um, there's an assumption that maybe the tree will come back again and a new world will emerge. So it's a very different world where the gods are going to die. So you see, these are not all powerful gods. They are um, negotiating with human beings. They, they like human beings to come to them. They want soldiers around them. Why would people worship a particular god if he didn't give them something in return? So there's a lot of negotiation going to happen. Exchange is going to happen. I'm going to give you a gift. What will you give me in exchange? Or I will make your life miserable unless you worship me. And you find these in many tribal deities. Uh, if you go to Bengal, for example, you have Mansa Mongol uh, Maha. Uh, Kavya, and where the goddess basically says that I'm the goddess of snakes and I'm going to make your life miserable if you don't worship me. Or you have Ma Mongara in Odisha, you know, a woman is waiting for her brother and her husbands to come back from uh, their trip across the sea. These are the sadhabas, these are the people who are ship sailing aristocrats. They travel in one part of the year when the winds are blowing towards the uh, Southeast Asia and they return in the, uh, in the second part of the year. When you pray to this goddess and you remember her and you give her the food you want in exchange, she ensures that your brother or your husband or your son comes back safely. So Chhat Puja and all is really coming from those traditions where you give the gods, you acknowledge the gods and in exchange the gods give you back something else. Um, and these are the old practices. So you have these two schools of 
thought broadly which exists, the polytheistic thought and the monotheistic. Therefore, when we talk of gods, we have to clarify. Uh, and India is mixed of both. It's a mix of both the monotheistic and the polytheistic for its various historical reasons. In Hindu mythology, how do we see mistakes? That which is not criminally wrong. What is the grey area as far as gods themselves exhibiting this these shades of grey and gods dealing with humans, showing their benevolence? There's no concept of a code of conduct. The monotheistic faiths have a very clear code of conduct. God says you should live like this. That's very clean. Uh, it comes from Habu Rabi's code. So there is a clear code of conduct. Hinduism never had that code of conduct. The closest you have is a phrase called Sanatan Dharma, the timeless way or the time. And nobody really knows what it means. There was this correct way of being. And you, uh, and depending on who you ask, it could mean doing your caste responsibilities, gender responsibilities. And really this word Sanatan Dharma really starts becoming popular in the Mahabharata when the feudal systems are emerging in India. So you can actually see this yearning for a code of conduct to control people and this idea of there is a proper way of being called Sanatan Dharma emerging. And um, the variations from it is always decided by a Brahmin lobby. And the Brahmin lobby says, okay, we have the Dharma Shastras and we will tell you what is Sanatan Dharma. And it somehow happens that the Brahmins are always in a privileged position. The landowners are always in a privileged position. So you see that people use the voice of God to determine different, different things depending on the realities of society. At no point do we say that being nasty is blasphemous. You're always talking about don't be nasty to God, but I can be nasty to everyone else. So long as I go to the temple and I behave like a pious being, it's fine. But I can be an obnoxious human being outside. So you create this kind of an artificial structure because in your mind there is a God out there in front of whom you are like the schoolboy who comes on times and sits in front of the front bench. But you are the bully outside in the playground. And somehow the teacher does not know that part of you because the teacher only sees you in the classroom coming on time doing your homework. And you can see this kind of a approach, this almost childish approach across religions. I'm also wondering that like, while you have, like, say, a Vishnu avatar, like, say, Krishna, uh, who interacts with humans, you have a Ram who, again, interacts with humans, but there are some gods even above that. Like, like I was discussing with Jairaj, like, like, what is a Brahma? I, I don't quite know what he does in the, barring the creation aspect. Has he made any mistakes? Has he ever interacted with humans and had any, well, not so great experiences so in India, you have the monotheistic and the polytheistic merged with each other. And the idea is that every human being is potentially capable of being divine. Now, if that is so, that means you all have the code of being divine. That's why there's a common phrase that God is inside you, which means we all have a potential to be like the divine. And how do you explain this? Hey, let me tell you the story of a king who manifested the divine and his name was Ram. Or let me tell you the story of a cowherd who manifested the divine and his name was Krishna. So now I have these stories to tell what happens when divinity manifests on earth. Because everybody else is struggling with uh, hunger and fear. Now that brings us to the big gods. So there's Brahma who creates all the living beings. And all living beings are hungry and frightened. And they're fighting over property and territory. And that's Brahma. Now, because he's created this world which is full of violence and conflict and contradictions, his job is done over there. We are the children of Brahma, not worthy of worship because he's not made our life better. 
Who do you worship? You worship a Shiva or a Vishnu who tells you how to manifest the divine inside you. And what is the divine inside you? Is your ability to be a nice person. And how can you be a nice person no matter what job you're doing? And what is the definition of a nice person? So just as every tree lives for itself and its ecosystem and doesn't behave like a parasite, humans have the capability of living for themselves and their ecosystem. So you worship a Shiva and a Vishnu because Shiva is more saying hunger and fear, I will destroy hunger and fear. So you worship him. Oh, wonderful. But Vishnu says, hey, it's not enough to destroy hunger and fear. It's also important to pay attention to other people's hunger and fear. And so the other becomes important. Now, see, these ideas, it's very different from the monotheistic structures. The operating system I'm giving you now is not about this is the code of conduct, this is the way you're supposed to behave. It is not this linear imperial model. This is a model which is talking about human life and how to engage it almost sounds like a self-help book where you're trying to tell how to live as a member of society because the concern in Indian society was never an imperial power these imperial ideas come to India only after the Mughal Empire we have this Chakravarti idea as a theory but he's never imperial as in controlling every aspect of your life this idea of the monotheistic monarchy emerges in India really at the time of the Mughal Empire. The Vijayanagar Empire, which is such a big empire, is not a centrally controlled empire. Indian were Raja Mandalas, which means no king who had absolute power. He would negotiate with his... Uh, in fact, there were five major confederacies within the Vijayanagar Empire. And you see this replicating itself in the Maratha Empire. We talk of Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj as single, but really in its height of its power, it was the Bhosles and the Shindes and the Holkars and the Peshwas. And they were a confederacy. It's never central control. In India, central control is a very new idea. You see this fierce resistance in India, which is very uncomfortable with this idea of this one hegemonic way of being. Although you keep having this idea that there's only one God, Paramatma, Ishwara, but he keeps manifesting in different ways in different ecosystems. So it's like a compromise between the monotheistic way and the polytheistic way. There is a constant negotiation between one God is many, many God is one. These ideas are not Islamic. These ideas are not Christian. These are uniquely Hindu gods. In China, where you have many gods and every, and every God follows a very clear hierarchical model. Whoever is the most senior or the most powerful, everybody bows to him. The alpha is all powerful in a species. So the Chinese follow that model. Very clear alpha uh, pecking order model. Very, very clean. India doesn't like the pecking order model because it's ghamand, it's mada, it's pride, it's the ego. So that is rejected. The idea of one rule fits all is rejected because there is a talking of diversity, dynamisms. So the diversity and dynamism of India does not allow monotheistic practices. And um, because polytheistic practices do not bind people together, you have this kind of a new mix of the monotheism and polytheism. And it's not well understood because the British tried to understand India using their monotheistic framework and privileged monotheism. Even today, when you hear some of these Babaji's talking, you can see they are really talking a very imperial language of power. And it's triumphalist, it's imperial, and it's marketed as religion. But imperialism is not religion. So imperialism is a kind of religion. In India, we have a rich tradition of Humans who have either attained godlike or divine personifications or who we, we describe as avatars of gods 
do we get a sense of whether they are infallible or not? When you read the Buddhist and Jain scriptures, you see people who live ordinary lives. So they are finite beings who over time through spiritual practices becoming larger than life and they become infinite beings. So the Buddha becomes infinite. He becomes larger than Adi Buddha. He becomes this part of the cosmos. He ceases being human. And uh, in the Mahayana Buddhist traditions, there are many Buddhists. He's like sort of part of the larger realm. And it's visualized with these massive statues in China. So from the finite, you become infinite. From the small, you become the big. Hinduism brings a different idea. There is an infinite being out there called Vishnu or Paramatma. And he manifests compassion and kindness on earth as a finite being. You have to live in a finite being. You have to deal with other finite beings. The difference being you are a finite being with wisdom, but you're surrounded by finite beings who are ignorant. And these kind of engagements will always create complications because the, the people you're dealing with are hungry and stupid and ignorant and you're here for them. And you have to realize that in the finite world, your godlike powers won't work. So Vishnu can do many magical things as Vishnu, but the moment he becomes Ram, he's controlled by the rules of his body and his birth. He's a royal, eldest son of the royal family. He can't just fly through the air and rescue his wife, which he can because he's divine. He has magical powers. But no, you have been given a human body and therefore you're limited by your human abilities and you will behave with the dignity that an eldest son of the royal family. So they are trying to explain what it means to be supremely wise, but be limited by a body. Now, these are complex ideas. These are ideas which are very subcontinental. They really emerged in India. And, um, you know, uh, even today you see people talking nonsense when they talk about Ramayana, Mahabharata, Purans. And you realize they are so in, in awe of the imperial discourse because your body loves it, right? You love the Ravana. We love the Ravana, but since it's not politically correct to say I love the Ravana, I will sort of frame it differently and frame it to rationalize it and say, actually, I am this. And then Indians are very good with uh, rationalizations and we figure out these things. But in India, if you look at folk stories, there are quarreling stories. Shiva's wife, Parvati, is quarreling with Lakshmi, who is uh, complaining about Vishnu and saying, oh, your husband is a cowherd. He just wanders around with the cows. And then Lakshmi says, but what about your husband? He doesn't do any work. He doesn't even know that snakes are not to be kept in your body, but he decorates himself with snakes. Now, these are these kind of a folk banter. And therefore, that brings you intimate with the gods. So if you go to Odisha, Jagannath Puri, you'll talk about God as your friend. You go to Pandharpur, God is a friend. You go to Srinath Ji, the God is a friend. There's Sakha Bhava, Dasa Bhava. You want to look at him as your master. He is your Madhurya Bhava. He's your lover. Vatsalya Bhava. He's your child. So you have different emotional approaches to deal with the divine. And you talk to them the way you would talk to a friend, a parent. Now, these are not ideas that are found in other parts of the world. Since we are living in a global discourse and we are in a way fascinated by the kind of power that a sort of a Catholic church has. You know, you want that power. That's what the religious establishments in India is trying to be. The Mathas are trying to suddenly say that we are the spokesperson of Hinduism. They never were. Uh, it was always a collaborative activity. The Purans were written in courts in collaboration with other wise people. Every Puran was designed like a vision statement of the kingdom. 
and every king and therefore you see the Purans look a little complicated because scholars have now realized that these were documents that guided the king on how to conduct and therefore it was always organic but it was never that all power is with this mutt you outsource religion to one group of people no religion is a outcome of every human being's aspirations and needs in India it is not something transcendental and outside and perfect known only to a group of people. That's a very Western model, which the British introduced to India, which the Islam introduced to India. And we are trying to create these mathas and sampradays, but they work only in small pockets, not pan-India. And that that's the thing. India is too diverse. What applies in Himachal will not apply in Uttarakhand. What applies in Uttarakhand will not apply to Bihar. Jharkhand will be so different. Odisha will be different. And that's the thing. Once you recognize this and you allow these local polities to emerge, then things work out quite comfortably in our country. This whole imperial model is where you are standing in the presence of God, know how to behave. When Krishna shows his infinite form to Arjun, he's not trying to intimidate him. He's saying, you know, I want to show you reality. And when you see reality, you are in awe of it. It's not done to intimidate. But truth is intimidating. But truth has no consciousness to intimidate you. It's very unlike a God showing his power. It's a very different. It's this idea that if I show you infinity, you'll suddenly realize how small you are. And then you realize, oh my God, I think I'm so important. I'm not. To shock and awe you, not to destroy yeah. you. Even when we use these words, like I'm trying to shock and awe you. There's a personal agenda over there. It's like if I take you and throw you in space. Space is not trying to intimidate us. But when we experience space and the hollowness and silence of space, I think it can be quite overwhelming. When we are talking about monotheism, there is an assumption of a mind out there. And that is a um, theological conversation. But definitely politicians like that idea of this one powerful God who sort of says, don't look into my eyes because I'm special, I'm superior, I'm more powerful than you are. Today's episode was produced by Jairad Singh and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TOI+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at toipodcast at timesinternet.in.